You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled, What is Necessary in These Urgent Times? This is Lecture 5, entitled, Initiation Science in the Light of Modern Thinking, given in Dornach on January 17, 1920. Yesterday I attempted to describe to you the current moment in human evolution. I attempted to show you that the forward progress of human evolution is at present entirely dependent upon what we might call initiation science. In other words, it will be necessary, first, that all branches of knowledge in human culture be filled through and through with this initiation science, but secondly, it will be necessary that all of our social thoughts and feelings be also filled through and through with the feelings and empathetic thoughts that result from the consciousness of this fact. There exists a spiritual revelation, a supersensory revelation. We need only to turn ourselves toward it. You might be persuaded by the countless number of people who come forward and say, quote, Yes, but history nowadays is studied quite precisely, and the things that spiritual science has to say about the character of the present moment in time and the way in which it has developed out of the prior ages is not spoken of in the mainstream study of history. These things are not spoken of in generally accepted history because that history, uninfluenced by true spiritual knowledge, does not ask after the true impulses and forces of history. In order to know what is actually speaking through history, you must first come to understand how to ask after it in the proper manner. Now, the important thing to understand is that the first three consecutive post-Atlantean epochs, the ancient Indian, ancient Persian, and the Egypto-Chaldean, were such that, using the terms that I spoke of yesterday, in each of them humanity grew ever younger than it was in the prior epoch. In other words, in the second epoch, human beings did not remain developmentally active into the same advanced age that they had in the prior first epoch, and it continues like this into the third, and so on. In the Greco-Roman epoch, meaning that time beginning in the 8th century before Christ and lasting until the 15th century after Christ, it was the case that human beings remained developmentally active into their early thirties. As this epoch drew to a close in the fifteenth century, human beings were very clearly developmentally active up to their twenty-eighth year. Nowadays, as we emphasized yesterday, the period of active development ends in our twenty-seventh year, and the end of the period is coming increasingly sooner in the life of each human being. Now as now we as human beings are only able to arrive at a relationship with the spiritual world 
through the medium of our physical bodily constitution once we reach our thirties. Please do not misunderstand me here. We can, of course, by turning to spiritual science, also arrive at this relationship with the spiritual world at an earlier age. But if we, as human beings, are to receive from the universe our own spiritual powers connected with our physical bodily organism, this can only occur if we remain developmentally active into our thirties. Nowadays we do not. For this reason, there is no sense in talking about the continued progress of human evolution through purely natural means. Evolution can take a step forward only when humanity is fructified by initiation science. Now, in one of my previous lectures, I have already mentioned to you about the initiates in the countries of our Western civilization, especially the Anglo-American initiates. But the peculiar thing about these initiates is that from their perspective they have it in mind to bring forth as initiation science only those things that will eventually help the English-Americans move into a position of world dominance. As strange as this sounds, it is the case. And we can accurately say every single claim that emerges from this side of the world will bear an imprint of this fact, which the skillful observer will perceive. More than anything else, all of these things give some indication of the variety of ways in which initiation science is handled in the Western world. You will have noticed by now that some limited aspects of initiation truths are not being held back here, and when you look back through the things that have been presented to you in the lectures given over the course of the years, you will find in them, if you were truly awake to follow these things, a whole line of important initiation truths that are intended not just for a portion of humanity, but that are intended rather to bring the whole of humankind out of its current state of crisis and carry it toward a next step in its evolution. But among the Western initiates in particular, you will find many people who take issue with the fact that so much of what I say here is presented to the public. This is connected with a skewed understanding of initiation science. In order to make this skewed understanding clear to you, I must present to you the following. Initiation science always centers absolutely on the individual human beings. Even when it speaks of a group of people, it is still in reality centered on the individual. True initiation science cannot be brought forward by the same methods previously used to influence people. The Catholic Church, for example, continues to utilize this old method of influencing people at present, and not only the Catholic Church, certain political parties also make use of the same methods. This method of influence takes advantage of, if I may say it thus, the psyche of the masses. It appeals to something that inculcates a collective body of people with something in a, shall we say, hypnotizing way. You know, of course, that 
when you are making use of this method, it is easier, as a rule, to instill something into a group of people than into an individual to whom you yourself speak. There is some truth to this idea of mass hypnosis. This manner of communicating, which is certainly effective, can be of no use to true initiation science. Initiation science must speak to each individual person and appeal to that individual's powers of conviction. The way of speaking that must be used by the initiation science, standing at the helm of human evolution, did not exist until now. This is the reason that, for example, my manner of speaking in my lectures and in my books is considered atrocious by many people, because in this speech the rule of appealing only to an individual's own powers of conviction is strictly obeyed. This points simultaneously to an important social principle that I have already mentioned in connection with other things in the past few days, and that you can find systematically and principally laid out in my book titled The Philosophy of Freedom, also known as Intuitive Thinking as a Spiritual Path. If we desire to appeal to individual persons with ethical, with moral impulses, then we cannot simultaneously desire to organize our society on general abstractions. We cannot bring together groups of people like a herd of animals in order to give them some sort of general directive. Rather, we can only turn to the individual human being and wait as every individual standing within the whole desires the good, so will the good come to fruition in the whole. The social morality of the future cannot be founded on anything other than this principle of general human relations. When I published my book, The Philosophy of Freedom, an article appeared entitled The Athenaeum, for example, in which it was said that such a perspective will lead only to a kind of theoretical anarchy. <clears throat> it will lead to this kind of anarchy only if people do not succeed in making themselves into true human beings, if they are instead content with being subhumans, coming together under the banner of such perspectives like a pack of animals. Lions are brought together by virtue of their physical form, as are hyenas, as are dogs, but the direction of human evolution is toward a time in the future when human beings do not organize like pack animals according to blood ties or organizational ideals, a time when the cooperation of human beings comes out of the powers of each individual. A few days ago I made use of a comparison that may sound somewhat strange, but which I believe can illuminate this entire matter clearly. I do not know whether there are really people out there who feel somehow liberated when everywhere they see signs that read, quote, by decree of such and such an agency, all those who are moving forward must stand aside for those moving in the other direction, close quote. Even in highly populated cities, people generally manage quite well when they encounter each other on the street. They simply pass each other by. Their human reason, those things that exist as impulses within them, keep them from simply running into one another. This is the ideal toward which humanity is striving. That we do not recognize this is our great misfortune. 
it is important for each of us to bear within ourselves the directives for our actions, even in regard to much more important matters, in such a way that others can rely upon us, even though no collective law regulating our actions to allow others to exist safely in our vicinity, a law that makes us all into subhumans, be specifically addressed to each situation. This work toward individuality, this is now connected with the most important impulses of human evolution. We will never be able to bring human individuality to this necessary place if we are able to transmit to it only the things that contemporary natural science or contemporary sociology or contemporary social motivations construct for us. Humanity will arrive at the kind of individuality that I have just described only when a collection of thoughts is awakened within it that comes out of initiation science. Through a relationship to the supersensory world, humanity will be filled with such thoughts, thoughts that will make each of us into a free individual human being simultaneously able to be effective within the social order and to do so in the greatest possible freedom. <clears throat> Everything depends upon human beings opening their hearts and minds to what comes out of initiation science. The deep trust, this must become the most important social motive of the future. We must be able to build upon each other, otherwise things will not go move forward. This, what I have just said, will seem to someone who seriously takes the whole of humanity into consideration and who is sufficiently initiated in supersensory things to be self-evident enough to state, quote, either this will occur or humanity will fall into the abyss. There is no third path, close quote. <clears throat> you might reply that you cannot imagine a way in which a social order could be founded upon general trust. The only answer to this is, quote, fine, if you are not able to imagine that, then you must instead imagine that humanity will have to fall away into oblivion. These are serious matters now, and they must be taken as such, close quote. In a certain abstract way, the initiates of the Western countries also know this to be true. They alone say the following, quote, we have brought initiation science to a certain level, and we can make it known to the public." But the initiation science that they will bring to the public will be one that leads toward the goals that I mentioned earlier. Now we are touching upon an area here that is equally applicable to true initiation science as to a one-sided initiation science. Thus the initiates of the Western nations could say, quote, we have knowledge of initiation science, we can bring it to the public, but this knowledge is such that it can only be directed toward the individual human being. Close quote. This is where the great concern, the terrible fear, arises for these people. They say, quote, well, if we only speak to the individual human being in the future, then we will incite the war of all against all, for then there will be no organization among human beings then everything will be built only upon general trust. Then people will find themselves in the midst of the war of all against all. Close quote. 
This is the fear that people experience. For that reason, these initiates desire to keep this most important of initiation truths, shall we say, locked away in a dark cellar, and allow humankind to wander toward the future in apparent illumination, though they remain asleep. These things are important issues at present, and have been ever and have been ever since the middle of the nineteenth century, when materialism reached its pinnacle in modern civilization, and people had to begin asking, quote, "How far will we go with initiation science?" Close quote. To this day, they have not dared to bring a true initiation science out into the public from the few small circles in which it resides. Now a particular kind of development in education and upbringing that humanity has undergone should not be allowed to be dismantled, but thanks to an altogether ill-conceived theology this dismantling has already begun. You can follow this educational development when you study true history and not that fable convenu that people commonly refer to as history nowadays. Nowadays, people do not actually have any idea about the way in which something that they refer to with specific words has changed over the course of time. People talk about Catholicism, about emperors, about aristocracy, about citizenship, and they believe that these words meant more or less the same thing in the 14th century, with perhaps only a few small nuances of difference in meaning. As long as people are not clear that what was meant by Catholicism, emperors, citizenship, and aristocracy in the 14th century is not at all the same as when we mean, as what we mean when we say those words today, they will not truly understand history. We must be clear about the way in which the constitution of the human soul has greatly changed in the course of only a few centuries. So what was the foundation for everything in the general upbringing and education of human beings that influenced the consciousness of the souls in the civilized world up until the 15th century and in its lingering after-effects until much later than that? All of it was based on the fact that human beings were in a position during those centuries to take up the supersensory world in their imaginative life not in the manner in which we must take it up, in which we must now take it up, through spiritual science, but rather through certain atavistic conditions of human consciousness that were still present. A foundational fact filled the human soul. It was the foundational fact that was connected to the mystery of Golgotha. People knew in a way that befitted that time The Christ being came down out of the super-earthly heights, incarnated into the human being Jesus of Nazareth, and at the mystery of Golgotha something occurred that could not have occurred according to common, accepted, naturally verifiable laws. People had in the concepts and mental pictures created by the mystery of Golgotha such ideas, such mental pictures, which they spread out over the surface of the earth. With these sorts of mental pictures, entirely different thought forms can be achieved than those that the everyday person now possesses. 
the thoughts that human beings come up with nowadays do not begin to approach the life of the supersensory world. Those human beings with a connection to the mystery of Golgotha, like the one I just described, were able to call forth thought forms that had a reality in the supersensory realm. Therefore we can also describe the present moment in the following manner. Humanity has, over time, lost its ability to create thought forms that have any meaning in the supersensory realm. In this state, it is impossible to create any sort of social order that will carry the earth forward. For that reason, all the social ideas that have been brought into humanity since roughly the 16th century have a character that can be described as follows. We encounter social directives in the thought forms of the modern era. Such social directives exist only to be broken, meaning that they will run their course for a certain period of time and then will break down. They lack the inner strength for ongoing development. This is precisely the secret of recent evolution. People willingly work with all sorts of social laws built upon the foundation of a world view that emerged in the 16th century. All of these social directives, from the moment of their inception, bear within them the seed of death because they are not connected with thoughts that have any reality in the supersensory world. For as long as there are people in the present who do not recognize this, there can be no talk of taking a social step forward. It is not a matter of conveying social ideas in an abstract manner, perhaps out of some sort of spiritual hocus-pocus. This is not the, at all the point. In my title, Kernpunkt in der Sozialen Fragen, you will not find a long chapter on spiritual science from which I then deduce social laws. Rather, I try to draw attention to things in reality that point toward what must occur. It is not a matter of deducing social life from spiritual hocus-pocus. Rather, it is a matter of each individual filling themselves with thoughts that are rooted in the supersensory. This kind of fulfillment makes it such that everything that an individual thinks has a reality in that supersensory world. <laughs> to put it paradoxically, but altogether truthfully as well, we can imagine a man let us say a statesman, a word that nowadays we always say with quotation marks around it, is saying all sorts of clever things, the sorts of things that people consider clever nowadays, but has never established any sort of connection with the supersensory world. If these things were to be brought into reality, they would always bear within them the seed of their own demise. Then another man speaks. If you did not know already that he was connected with spiritual science, then you would not necessarily notice that the thing, from the things he says he would simply speak somewhat differently about the same matters. <laughs> from what he says about social questions, for example, you would not necessarily realize that he worked with spiritual science, but the fact that he does work with spiritual science gives his ideas a true impulse. And so it is important nowadays that we not allow ourselves to be satisfied with abstract logic. 
we must speak realities. We are already in the midst of a period of human evolution in which, for example, a journalist might write the most beautiful things and astound people with them, and they would say, quote, Yes, when I read that, that, I see that it is incredibly pure spiritual science. Close quote. This is not what is important. It is not about the sound of the words that we say. What is important is the foundation of soul from which such words comes. It is all about what human beings carry within themselves as actual substance. If I were to make the same comparison in an entirely different way, then I would draw upon the example that I have used often in the past. There are poets today who have a relatively easy time writing poetry and compose beautiful verses that astound us. However, this is also true. 99% of the poetry written today is worthless. There are others whose verses sound as though they were written with a stutter, but these stammering, awkward verses might actually stream forth from a genuine fount of humanity, which is to say a genuine spiritual fount whereas those that astound and amaze us because our language now is so developed that every door in it can open out onto something astounding and amazing, those verses might actually be collections of worthless word husks. It is therefore necessary that we look past the words to the motive behind them. That is to say, we must not simply deal with the abstract, not simply read for the sound of the words, but rather place ourselves fully in the midst of life, and from that place within life judge the phenomena around us. And this is why it is important that spiritual science, as it is spoken of here, must come to fruition in all of the various branches of life. Otherwise, what must enter human evolution will not. When two people talk with one another, they understand each other through language. But that language was, a relatively short time ago, something altogether different than it is today. When you understand something through language nowadays, you essentially become a slave to that language. In an earlier time, people learned a lot through the genius of language, and they actually did not think very much for themselves. They allowed language to think for them. This only lasted for so long, until the beginning of the time period that I described to you yesterday. Now we will move forward only when we are able to emancipate ourselves from language in our thoughts and feelings. Nowadays, language essentially runs as though it were a machine in whose midst we are standing. In place of our human forces and being, Araman is becoming increasingly more present in the developing life of our language. It is now Araman who speaks when people do. As a result, we must become more and more used to taking our understanding from something other than the words themselves. We must stand deeper in the midst of life in order to understand each other now, deeper than people did during an age when the things human beings exchanged with one another were still born on the wings of language.
That same exchange is no longer carried by those wings. Nowadays it is fundamentally possible for someone to be altogether empty of any sort of true knowledge. But because language, contemporary, civilized language, has over time developed sentence structures, types of sentences, and even whole theories that lie entirely within language itself, that person that person would need only to slightly rearrange what is already there and will suddenly have created something seemingly new, when in actuality nothing more has been done than shuffle around the things that already existed. You could easily conduct the following experiment, though it may sound strange. Take a look at the pronouncements of good bourgeois materialistically minded, in one way or another, professors, philosophers, natural scientists, and others of that kind. Take a look at what these people said during the last century, in the second half of the nineteenth century, and you will find that it only requires a slight mental exercise to arrive at the following. Let us take, shall we say, some sort of paper by a particularly honest philosopher, an honest university philosopher from the second half of the nineteenth century, who expressed his opinion about one social matter or another. You could then take out certain key words and replace them with a few different key terms that appear in another sentence. You could mix the whole thing up just a little bit, and suddenly you would end up with the personal philosophy of Herr Trotsky. If you want to come up with a personal philosophy like that of Herr Trotsky, you do not need to think for yourself. You simply need to allow language to do the thinking for you in the manner that I described earlier. But what is truly at work here are not human forces, because in a certain sense language has already emancipated itself from them. At work here are harmonic forces in human culture. What I have said just now is something you can experience for yourself. You need only to open your inner soul eyes to such things. For those who do not work with words, but rather with thoughts, for them present-day language is an altogether dreadful instrument. Nowadays writing is not easy for those who work with thoughts. When you try to write down a sentence, it does not communicate what you want it to, because so many other people have written similar sentences. The sentence will always try to form itself from out of the collective human psyche, but you must first become the enemy of this if you want to record what rests within your soul in the form of a sentence on the page. <clears throat> Those who have an impact on the public and feel this enmity toward language are always in danger of surrendering their thoughts to language and coming up with beautiful programs with it. The necessary task of foregoing a true place for thoughts in the world must nowadays begin in a, in a battle with language. Nothing is more dangerous than allowing yourself always to be carried by language, meaning that you say, quote, and here is how you express this thing, here is how you express that one, close quote. Insofar as a stereotype or expression is present, insofar as people say, quote, there is only one way to express this, close quote. We cast ourselves into the common stream of language and do not work with the original thoughts 
lying behind it. Our schools are terrible in this regard. Teachers in our schools who correct, according to conventional standards, every seemingly unformed but actually independent thought regularly commit gross atrocities. We should be seeking out every one of those unformed but substantially individual sentences that a school child puts down on paper. We should incorporate these thoughts into our conversations and lectures and absolutely should not swoop in with that detestable red ink and replace what comes out of youthful individuality with conventions. For nowadays the most important thing is that we look to what comes out of youthful individuality. Perhaps it will come toward us packaged in a manner that is not always comfortable, in a form that we might easily see as full of errors. If you were to read the letters that Goethe wrote as a youth with the eye of an elementary school teacher, then you would find a lot of things that needed correcting. The Austrian poet Robert Hemmerling received the worst possible grade in the section on German composition on his final examinations. And there is still something true about what Hebel wrote in his diary. I have mentioned it often in the past. He wanted to write a drama in which a teacher of older children had a student in his class who was the reincarnated Plato. The teacher would read Plato's works with his class, and the teacher would find that this reincarnated Plato did not understand the first thing about the texts by Plato that they were reading. Friedrich Hebel came up with this idea for a drama, which was never brought to fruition. Nevertheless, there is some truth to the idea. Now we must be clear that any time human beings are led astray by luciferic and dharmonic forces, they are resisting the normal forward movement of humanity. Today we find ourselves at a moment when it is profoundly necessary to seek something new from the spiritual life in order to rescue humanity. It is no wonder that people are struggling very strongly with all possible forms of logical fallacies and immoralities. And because of this, I have always had to include considerations of the present moment when I speak pro domo as a kind of add-on to our other considerations. About eight days ago, I told you about the slanderous and base things that are currently making the rounds through the German newspapers, things whose sources are familiar, which are directed against what streams out from anthroposophically oriented spiritual science, and what it has to say about social life. But there is a particular reason that this has occurred that I would like to point out today in order to describe this matter to you more exactly. To that end, I would first like to draw your attention again to what has happened. What has happened is that suddenly a slanderous article was published in a string of German newspapers that is well summarized in the following sentences. I have read these to you before. However, let us once again place them before our souls, for it is worth it to, to do so in order that we might better understand the characteristics of this particular slice of our present culture. Quote, Rudolf Steiner as political informant the famous theosophist charlatan, Dr. Rudolf Steiner, who has a following of several million people, founded a league in the spring of 1919 in support of the threefolding of the social organism, a league that was originally to be simply a religious socialist collective 
before coming into contact with the Bolshevists and Communists. It now practices a form of unusual and unsavory political agitation. We have received the following reports from Dresden. According to authentic and irreproachable sources, parenthesis here, please pay attention to that phrase, according to authentic and irreproachable sources, that's Steiner speaking, back to the quote, the Society of the Threefold Social Order has found out the names of all those officials who were supposedly active in reactionary movements and is collecting material and testimonies about their actions against the rights of the people, which are then to be delivered to the Entente with the goal of extraditing these individuals. The verity of these accusations makes no difference whatsoever to Herr Steiner and his comrades, and that they are not afraid to make use of altogether false evidence is proven by a passage from a letter which reads, Accusations of theft should be left out because in those cases it is easier to prove that the accusation is false. Similarly, unbelievable accusations, such as child murder, should not be raised. Now this slanderous and altogether false article has been printed word for word in a string of German newspapers. There are many things in it that are astounding, but let me take out just one fact to start with. There is mention of letters that have supposedly been written and that are now being held up as authentic documents. In the most recent issue of Drei Gliederung, which has not yet been distributed, I have made expressly clear that I am familiar with the sources out of which these things originate. For the moment, however, I would like to read for you a little document from which you learn the nature of the so-called authentic basis on which stand the people who disseminate such things into the world. After this whole flood of spitefulness had run its course, after I had also received confirmation from various places about the murky sources of this vulgarity, which I would have known regardless, I received the following letter from a friend. I have only just received this letter, but it was written, please take careful note of this, before the newspaper articles were published. In other words, the things that this letter contains were set down before those articles appeared. Please keep this fact in mind. The letter reads, quote, A long-standing member of our Anthroposophical Society, who is apparently still an active officer, was given access to the two letters currently being circulated within the administration and quite understandably causing quite a stir. These letters bear the inscription to IRD, or R in Berlin, and are therefore probably addressed to the same place though whether they originate from the same place or different places is unknown, for there is no signature. In the first letter, the talk is of Steiner's League and the Freemasons, and it states that in the near future Steiner's League will be distributing pamphlets made to appear as though they come from the monarchists, though the actual intention will be to make the monarchists and the anti-Semitic movement look ridiculous. In other words, Steiner's League will attempt to fight against the monarchists by posing as them. These pamphlets are supposedly printed already, and a signature, written in a different hand, has been arranged for each region. So you can see, there is a factory somewhere where they make fake letters. These letters are actually circulating out there. It goes on to say, in the second letter, the following recommendation was made, since, subquote, Since there are still a number of monarchist-friendly officers in the armies, 
it will be absolutely necessary to depose them from their positions, and this should be done in the following shameless manner. Among the members of the army who served under these officers during the campaigns, people should be sought out who would swear under oath that these officers committed a large number of outrageous moral turpitudes. Close sub-quote. Continue quote. At the same time, it was mentioned that these transgressions must be believable, and that for this reason things such as rape and child murder should not be made as accusations. This list of sins and transgressions would then be transmitted to the Entente through a certain Herr Grelling, this is the only name used in any of the letters, and the, ent- uh, that's a, uh, uh, okay. and the Entente would then demand the immediate dismissal of the officers named. Close quote. The person mentioned in this letter saw both of these fake documents with his own eyes. So, this is the letter named in the newspaper article, the letter that was widely circulated, there were probably numerous copies, and bore the inscription to such and such a place in Berlin. First these letters were forged, fabricated, and then a newspaper article was written about them. This is the way in which they are attacking us. I would like to know whether more things are needed in order to make it really understandable just how necessary it is to wake up. A moral footing for humanity has emerged from everything that has happened in the last few years, though it is rooted in the impossibilities that preceded it and bare blossoms such as these. It is important that we not continue to sleep, but rather come to recognize the mire in which we are stuck. It might be all too easy if we do not speak strongly about these matters for other people, even those among our own ranks, to say, Should we not simply write to the nice men who fabricated these letters and then wrote false articles based upon them in order to try to come to terms with them? We need to open our eyes and see the kinds of people that live side by side with us in the world. You will only get yourself dirty if you try to seriously engage with them. We cannot go on being, being asleep to things that must be said over and over, that must be said over and over again. We must look at the connections between them. Do you believe that it should go unpunished that, for example, in the Jesuit journals in which the false claims were made that I have mentioned to you in the past, that in those journals for years the fairy tale was told that I am a failed priest, simply because it was then taken back with the words, quote, that was something we heard, but that cannot be substantiated, close quote. Do you believe that it would be right to say to this Jesuit priest, well, now you have taken back the lies that you spread? No, the right thing to say to them is, quote, you have violated your duty in the most irresponsible manner by spreading a rumor in the world without proof and your retraction is entirely meaningless. Those who still understand something about morality must take it very seriously. We have heard nothing but lies in the past five years, and we are still living in the after-effects of those lies. It is essential that we fix our gaze upon these matters seriously. By way of this example, you can clearly see how things stand. When karma does not bring these sorts of things so close to home for everyone, and therefore the experience of an individual does not become the deciding factor for the collective, then there will always be people 
who would prefer to make an attempt to compromise, to treat individuals such as Ferrier, for example, as human beings with whom we try to work on this or that, when in reality such individuals are among the lowest of humanity, and that they unscrupulously write and publish things for which they have no proof. Such things are, for those who stand, for those who want to stand on a firm and healthy foundation, simply no longer permissible. If I did not have such a ready example that proved it was true, people might not be so quick to believe that there are factories for fabricating documents these days, documents which, in quotes, they then use to publicly treat people in the way demonstrated by this newspaper article. But this sort of thing happens constantly nowadays, and the majority of the things that you read are based on nothing more than the fruits of these moral quagmires. Anyone who possesses a healthy, serious, and honest perspective on the world will recognize this and conduct themselves accordingly. It is no longer permissible for us to compromise with people who work in such a slanderous and false manner. It does not justify it to say, quote, one must act benevolently toward all people, close quote, Love for all people. To have love for such people demonstrates an obvious lack of love for those who have been slandered, those who have been wronged. It is a matter of knowing where to give your love. The act of loving transgressions can never lead to health for humanity. That such things must sometimes occur, that can be foreseen. But we can only foresee the way in which certain sides will choose to work with it when it does occur. You need only open up the Jesuit literature that has been sent out since the Church's decision regarding anthroposophical texts in July of 1919. You need only to look the people in the eye who have written these things and examine what sort of access to reality they truly possess. Having done that, you will recognize everything that eventually leads into these sorts of moral quagmires. I will not discuss all of these murky sources today, which are very familiar to me. Because of my familiarity with them, I also know how all of these things are connected with each other, and that this is just the beginning. My only hope is that very few, as few as possible, will be naive enough to believe that anything can be solved by responding to or opposing such things. These people are not interested in whether they are claiming this or that. They only care about making a juicy claim that debases others. The content of their claims are of no consequence to them. But we must not only look to the fact that countless people are at work in these ways among us in the world. We must also look to the fact that for decades we, the general public, out of laziness and dormancy, have exhibited a great tolerance for these practices a desire simply to not examine how public opinion is generated nowadays. This, however, is the most important way in which we might better ourselves. If we do not deal with them like the Jesuit Zimmermann or the University Professor Dessoir in the manner I have described, no healing can take place. The people who do not stand over and against them and do not confront them properly are guiltier than they themselves. But this is simply how these individuals do business, even if it is rather unseemly, like the actions of Professor Desoir. I described that to you a short time ago. 
but now it is important for us to finally wake up. There is a direct path between one of Deswar's books or one of Zimmermann's critiques and those moral quagmires that I have described to you. I must mention these to you as well for no other reason but to point out the symptoms of those forces that are currently working to suppress any striving after the Spirit. And to that end I would like to mention here that I was just given an article ostensibly intended for the Brockhaus Conversational Encyclopedia, for which that infamous man, Desoir, parenthesis infamous only to us, close parenthesis, was to write the entry on anthroposophy. At the same moment in which he had me write this article through a middleman, he meanwhile wrote his article for that book, that sham of a book. But now think about what could happen. This article now exists here in our in-house archive. Later it will be found there, and people might think it is an article that originated with me. And consequently, somebody might then be able to say, quote, yes, this article in the archive was copied by Steiner from Desoir's entry in the encyclopedia, and then Steiner claimed it as his own, close quote. These are the kinds of flowers that will blossom if we do not stay awake at all times. Something can be plagiarized and then rearranged in such a way that the person who originally wrote the piece will appear to be the thief, and the one who actually plagiarized will appear to be the author. The question of morality must be tackled from a variety of sides and perspectives, but will not be taken on in a fruitful manner by anyone who does not stand firmly on the grounding of a healthy spiritual science. This is the addendum to today's lecture that I wanted also to share with you, taken out of a consideration of this historical moment. The end of Lecture 5.